Welcome to the third season of Bold Signals, a podcast about the people who produce, consume, and apply science. My name is John Borghi, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and a library postdoc. In this episode, I start a new segment, Scenes from the Replication Crisis, which discusses the methods scientists use through the lens of the people who created them and the people who critique them. I also interview Brian Nosek about his research on implicit bias and his work in making science more open and more reproducible. And finally, in another sort of new segment, I examine how science is presented and communicated outside the lab by looking at science documentaries. The first documentary I'll be covering in the Bold Signals Documentary Club is Cosmos, the seminal work by Carl Sagan. In the past few seasons of this podcast, I've used this first segment to talk about everything from politics to systemic issues in science to the interaction between politics and the systemic issues in science. In the time between the second and third season, I've thought a lot about what it means to talk about science when terms like fake news and post-truth are becoming so common. As a scientist turned librarian, I believe very strongly that things like evidence and expertise matter. My entire professional existence is really predicated on the importance of data integrity and accessibility. Basically, the idea that good things happen when people are given good and accurate information. You know, I'm a scientist who has spent a lot of time talking about openness and reproducibility. And this episode features an interview with a scientist whose work is dedicated to those same things. But recently it's occurred to me that it would be valuable to add more context to those conversations. So let's talk about open science and reproducibility and what it means to say that we're in a replication crisis. But while we do that, let's also talk about how we got here. Since science is a human enterprise, let's talk about the humans who developed the methods scientists use and the human impulses that may or may not have led to those methods being applied in ways that are not necessarily ideal. Let's talk about scenes from the replication crisis. And let's start, if not at the beginning, then definitely in the first act with Ronald Fisher in one of the most significant phrases in modern science, P is less than 0.05. It's 1925. Ronald Fisher is a geneticist and statistician working at Rothamsted Experimental Station, an agricultural research institute located in the English countryside. Before coming to the research institute, Fisher was instrumental in reconciling Charles Darwin's notion of evolution by natural selection with Gregor Mendel's laws of genetics. Basically, if you've ever wondered how Darwin's observations of finches and Mendel's experiments with pea plants led to our modern understanding of evolution, one of the people you have to thank for that is Ronald Fisher. It's also worth pointing out, given Fisher's influence on genetics, that he was an outspoken eugenicist. After all, this was the early 20th century and the history of science is not exactly a straight line of people or non-horrific views on society. Back to the countryside. Long-term experiments with wheat and grass and roots abound at Rothamsted, giving Fisher a bumper crop of data to analyze. However, though the overall quantity of data is high, sample sizes are low. A really influential study of the effects of rain on wheat growth incorporates data from just 13 plots. Concerned with generalizing the results of these experiments, after all, the point of this type of research is to increase crop production, not just at an experimental research station, but you know, much more broadly, Fisher synthesizes several recent advances in small sample statistics in a framework that will come to be known as significance testing. For example, he takes a statistical test called the student's t-test, 
which was actually initially developed by a statistician to monitor the quality of Guinness, of all things, and develops a complementary test known as the analysis of variance, or ANOVA. To ensure these innovations are accessible to research, to ensure that his innovations are accessible to the research community beyond Rothamsted, Fisher publishes a book, Statistical Methods for Research Workers. And central to the book, and Fisher's significance testing framework more generally, is a concept called the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis basically states that there is no significant difference between groups of data. In Fisher's conception, Statistics like the t-test or the ANOVA are really tests of the null hypothesis. The results of these tests indicate the likelihood of observing a given pattern of results when the null hypothesis is true. Numerically, this likelihood is expressed as a p-value. Fitting its origins in applied research, the utility of Fisher's framework is probably best demonstrated with a practical example. So suppose Fisher and his colleagues want to study the effects of a particular method of fertilization on the growth of grass. So to do this, they obtain yield measurements from 10 plots of land that use the fertilization method and 10 that don't. These numbers may seem really small, but I think they're reflective of the time and effort that goes into harvesting good data. Before examining all this data, Fisher reminds his colleagues that the null hypothesis stipulates that there is no difference between the fertilized and unfertilized plots. Now, this is admittedly a really abstract way of talking about something as extraordinarily exciting as watching grass grow. So he reiterates that the null hypothesis essentially just says that the fertilization method has no effect. And then he runs a t-test. A resulting p-value of 0.5 indicates that assuming the fertilization method has no effect, the probability of Fisher and his colleagues obtaining their yield measurements is about 50%. A resulting p-value of 0.1 indicates that the probability is 10%. In his book, Fisher introduces an informal criterion for rejecting the null hypothesis, p less than 0.05. So finally, we've arrived, p less than 0.05, where p indicates the probability of observing a given pattern of data given that the null hypothesis is true. Almost a decade after the publication of Statistical Methods for Research Workers, Jersey Neyman and Egon Pearson address what they view as a fundamental asymmetry in Fisher's framework. Namely, though it's really intended to help researchers evaluate the results of their experiments, the focus on null hypotheses doesn't really give them any way to evaluate experimental hypotheses. Basically, their argument is that you can use Fisher's methods to evaluate if there's a difference between two groups, but you can't use it to make a statement about what's causing that difference. Though their hypothesis testing framework draws really heavily from Fisher's, at least initially, Neyman and Pearson's has really a different goal. Rather than trying to give researchers tools to evaluate the results of their agricultural experiments, their goal is determining the most optimal test for deciding between competing hypotheses. These hypotheses include Fisher's null hypothesis, but also a variety of alternative or experimental hypotheses. To this end, they introduce three important concepts to the field of research-oriented statistics something called a type one error, which is the probability of incorrectly rejecting the null hypothesis, something called type two error, the probability of incorrectly accepting the null hypothesis, and power, which is something that comes up actually in the interview this week, which is the probability of correctly rejecting the null hypothesis. Disagreements between Fisher and Neyman and Pearson soon escalate into open antagonism. 
Note, seriously, reading accounts of these debates, you get the sense that Fisher's true talent wasn't in agriculture, biology, or statistics, but in expressing his humongous ego, mostly through yelling. <laughs> However, despite the controversy and despite the polemic nature of these disagreements, the two frameworks are soon combined and presented as one. What emerges is an enormously and immediately influential model of statistical testing that incorporates Fisher's null hypothesis, Neyman and Pearson's alternative hypotheses, and a focus on observing p-values that are less than 0.05. So when we talk about p-values, and when we talk about things like p-hacking, what we're really talking about is a method for evaluating the difference between different groups of data that was designed by an evolutionary biologist and eugenicist for use in agriculture experiments. We're also talking about a debate about what these numbers mean and how these methods should be used that has been ongoing for 80 years. So that's Ronald Fisher, and that's the p-value. Next time, we'll talk about the effect of all this on the research literature. We'll talk about people who look at the literature and review the literature and find problems. We'll talk about something called the file drawer problem, and we'll talk about the law of small numbers. This week on Bold Signals, I talked to Brian Nozick. In the first half of our interview, we discuss how he came to do the work that he does now and what it means to study implicit bias. And if you could just introduce yourself by name and then a little bit about what you do. My name is Brian Nosek. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and also executive director at the Center for Open Science. So I definitely want to talk about the Center for Open Science. Before we get there, I, I do want to talk about, about you and how you came to do the work that you do. And I think the easiest way to do that is to start at the, at the very beginning. How did you become interested in, in this thing this thing we call science. I started undergrad as a computer engineering student and found it fascinating to try to figure out how to get computers to do stuff that I wanted to do. Um, and then as the years wore on and the, sort of the end of my third year, I decided maybe I should take some easy classes for a break. And so I started taking women's studies and psychology classes for fun. And then my engineering grades started to drop because I was spending all my time uh, on these other classes. Uh, the women's studies just fascinated about issues of gender and equity and how people uh, have opportunity and how the culture creates and constrains opportunity. And then in the psychology classes with this sort of realization of, oh, wait, you can do science on humans? This cool. And just being totally fascinated with the possibility that could not just figure out how circuits work, but figure out how people work. And so I, I got hooked. Uh, and so in the, what was it, fall of 1994, I called my parents and said I was leaving computers because the internet's going nowhere and it's psychology because that's really nowhere it's at. And after a bit of resistance of, are you really sure? Uh, they said, okay. Uh, and so I switched my primary major to psychology and got uh, minors in computer science and women's studies, but knew then I was gonna go to, right to grad school and try to do science on humans forever. And I'm always curious about that transition from kind of an undergraduate who's learning about, in your case, psychology and, and women's studies and, and these kind of social science things as a, as a student, you know, sitting in a classroom 
to a graduate student where you're still learning about them conceptually, but you're also starting to practice research in the lab. So could you talk a little bit about, I guess, the type of research you did in grad school, but also that shifting perspective from student to researcher? Yeah, the I, I got a, some experience doing research as an undergrad when I switched. My honors thesis was looking at gender stereotypes in Disney characters. So I friends over and I'd make lunch while they watched the first Disney film and then they'd eat lunch and then they'd watch another Disney film and then they'd fill out all these surveys about stereotypes. And, uh, that was great fun uh, as a project, but, uh, but, I, but I had a very idealistic view of how science gets done. And so the very interesting thing for me, at least, in starting graduate school where I, I joined Mazarin Banaji's lab at Yale and she and her graduate advisor, Tony Greenwald, who was then at the University of Washington, had just started working with the implicit association test, a tool Tony had invented the year before. And the labs were doing just the very first studies with it. And on my recruiting trip, I got to try it out. And, and I was just blown away by this tool uh, of trying to measure things that might exist in people's mind that they may not know about, may not even agree with and saw immediate application to the things that I was getting excited about in my psychology and women's studies courses. What might people believe about themselves or about other people uh, that they don't say or can't say? And can this be a tool that actually measures that? And so the transition into grad school was very exciting in terms of the substance because I felt like I was right at, out, up front, uh, out front in this sort of this new uh, methodology that had all sorts of opportunity to test new things. So running uh, as, as soon as I uh, hit the ground trying to, to design studies and do new things. The, the other part, so that the, substantively, I just jumped into that and did tons of stuff. The other uh, part of it was that realization on getting into grad school in those first year of courses that the how I idealized how science operates is not at all how it operates. And that realization was stunning in the sense of getting some awareness that science as a as just a people trying to figure stuff out and discover things and sharing what they learn and getting excited about the problems and the things they can't figure out and what they can and sharing that uh, is why most people were there. And the more senior the grad student, the more cynical they were that that's how it actually works. And what they would talk about is, oh my God, I need to publish. Oh my God, I need to publish more. Oh my God, I'm never going to get a job oh my God, I have to find this great new thing or else I'll never get the postdoc. The, the discussions sometimes could pull back into those the excitement of discovery and figuring things out, but oftentimes got real concrete uh, and real practical about the realities of just surviving uh, in the field. And that was a, a dramatic um, experience uh, for having some insight on science being done by scientists. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get to some of that because as someone who started graduate school in 2008 and was in a psychology program, as the word replication became something we're talking about all the time and, you know, there's a crisis and all that stuff, I, I think we should definitely dive into that. But I, I do want to touch at least briefly on this substantive kind of aspects of the implicit association test, because I think 
if people have heard about this before outside of kind of psychology or research circles, they might've heard of it as kind of like the racism test. So could you just talk a little bit more about what the IET is and, and kind of what it's useful for studying? Yeah. So the, the implicit association test or IET is a, a method for measuring associations that may exist in people's mind without asking them to consult their mind for what those associations are. So can we assess things that people may have in memory uh, without requiring them to introspect about it, that decide what it is they feel about it? Uh, and so the task is uh, very straightforward in its sort of core concept. Uh, you can imagine a deck of cards, and instead of four suits, you have items representing four different categories, say black and white faces and good and bad word. And your task with this deck of cards after it's shuffled up is to sort it into two piles as fast as you can. And I time you, how fast can you sort it? One time you have to sort all the black faces and the bad words into one pile and all the good faces and the good words into another pile, white faces and good words. Then I, we see how long it take you to sort the deck. Then you shuffle it up again, you have to sort them again, but this time you have to put all the white faces and bad words into one pile and all the black faces and good words into a different pile. And we just measure how fast you go. So the key measure is, is there a difference in time uh, between sorting the black faces and good words into one pile or the white faces and good words into one pile? And what we find is that most people, including myself, find it easier to put white and good faces together compared to black and good faces, or black, white and good words together compared to uh, black faces and, and good words together. And that is interesting just as an observation. Uh, and then this question is, what does it mean? Uh, why is it that I'm having an easier time putting white faces with good that compared to black faces with good? And the interpretation is that the easy the easiness of my sorting those is an indication of how strongly they're associated in my memory so white faces are more easily associated with good things because i'm exposed more uh, to white faces being linked to good things and black faces being linked to bad things compared to the reverse and whether i like it or not whether i believe that or not in terms of my what i would endorse as my beliefs or values or attitudes those associations form in my memory, and a test like the IAT is able to elicit them. And so that, when I first did the test on myself, uh, the, you know, that first year of, of graduate school, you know, I, I'm finding myself having a really easy time putting white faces together and black faces are bad, and then it gets hard all of a sudden. And you know, I look at my hands, saying, How, where is this coming from? That's not me. And that is really the power of the test in terms of an experiential event is it is challenging my self-concept because I would say that I value people based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And nonetheless, I show this kind of association. So what that methodology prompted was a lot of innovation in terms of theory. How is it that we might have different thoughts in our mind than values are? And a lot of, of just a ton of work trying to figure out what it means. Is this something, is it racism, right? So the, the initial point is you might've heard of it as the racism test or a test of prejudice or a test of what you really think. And to me, it was upon the very first experience with it, it was immediately obvious that it wasn't those things because I did it myself. And I know my own mind enough to be confident that I don't believe those things. I don't endorse those things. I don't intend to be prejudiced and yet 
I show these effects. I didn't need to do another study to convince myself that it isn't a measure of racism just because of the consultation with my personal experience. I was willing to make an inference there on a case study. And, and the research more generally has been borne that out in the sense that people show all kinds of associations on this test that are different than what they will consciously report their values to be. And it could be that we're partially hiding that and we just are embarrassed by it. And so we really get truly deep down, but we don't want to say it. But it's definitely more than that. Uh, and that is that we have lots of automatic responses. We have lots of things that exist in our memory that are different than our values. And that stuff can express itself uh, in surprising ways. And the IIT is one of now a family of measures uh, that assesses some of that content. And so the other kinds of things that we've been working on over the years is what's the consequence of having that stuff in memory, that stuff that we would call an implicit bias, a bias that's unintentional. Does it have impact on our behavior? Under what conditions does it have impact on our behavior? How does it form? Uh, how do you change them if they're ones that you don't want, right? There may be lots of biases I have that I'm perfectly happy having, even if they occur automatically, but other ones I may not like. So how do we uh, address those? And so that's been keeping us busy substantively for the last 16 years or so. Just when you were talking about implicit biases and, and keeping things in memory, you know, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training. And so my, my research life, as I've discussed on the podcast before, typically involve lots of MRI research, like fMRI research. And there's a sense where, you know, we're looking at functioning that is not at the level of someone's consciousness. You know, when I'm looking at memory processing in certain brain regions, that's not something people are conscious of. And so it's very interesting for me to hear as, as someone who worked under that assumption all the time, that there are these tasks uh, like the IAT that <laughs> they, they don't involve multi-million dollar scanning equipment and they have very similar assumptions, even though the method kind of looks very different. All of which is to say, you know, I am always shocked at the similarities between the, the thought processes and different parts of psychology or, or different parts of neuroscience or, or different parts of science in general. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of connection with these things and the, and the real, to me, the, the, are the sort of the singularly, uh, or the consolidating surprising element is just that everyday experience that we have as being humans, which is to feel like the thoughts in our mind are the sum total of our thoughts and to not be able to recognize how much happens behind the scenes automatically to, to make it possible for us to survive and thrive in the world, right? So when we, we have this experience of I'm listening to another person, we don't have the experience of those sound waves entering our ear canal activating some chemical and, and electrical reactions that are sending that information to be processed and, and parsed into phonemes and morphemes to look up the meaning of those words, to string those, uh, to parse into words in the first place, to look up the meanings, to turn that into some sort of experience of there's meaning in there, right? All we have is that output, which is he said something. What was it that he said? What do I do with that? How do I understand it? What's, why is it important to me? without all that recognizing how much work is going into producing it as an experience. And, and we focus so much on that end result because it is really important and fascinating that just experience and that sense of we are the drivers of our own mind and behavior. But the real, to me, the real fascinating part of psychology is, is unpacking what happens behind the scenes and, and what might be guiding us in directions that are different than what our conscious intention 
uh, is or what we why we think we're doing the thing that we do. So on the the topic of, I guess, human behavior, I, I did want to loop back and talk about like the other half of your or the other side of your your professional life and, and, and looking at the bigger things in science. So you mentioned that when you were in graduate school and you were talking to people about the process of science and how our ideals don't actually match the realities. And I think that's an experience most graduate students have of like creeping cynicism as they become more and more senior. Could you just talk a little bit more about that and, and how that observation kind of led you to do the work that you do now through the Center for Open Science? That realization had impact on my substantive work first uh, and along the way. But my the most significant memory about the realizations of, of the realities of doing science is from Alan Kasdan's research methodology class and the discussions that the graduate students would have afterwards, uh, you know, often uh, over beers at, at the bar that night of how is it possible that this is happening? Because we would each re- week, we would read papers about uh, from Jacob Cohen about how research is very low powered, uh, can't really detect the, the findings that are in the literature and how that makes no sense. We'd read Tony Greenwald's paper on prejudice against the null hypothesis and how null results aren't taken seriously and how that may be distorting the credibility of the literature. And each of these papers we would read, they were written in the 1960s and 70s. We were mid-90s, early 2000s, talking about, oh, th- these are exactly the problems we're facing now. And, and the papers laid out the solutions. They said, okay, well, to solve this, you need to do replication, you need to do this, you need to increase power and address this, you need pre-registration. And all of the different solutions were just described there and, and we weren't doing them. And so it was just this sort of, what, what is going on? If we know that these are problems, why, why are we not addressing them in the field? And so having had an engineering background, I think uh, in undergrad, I think I, my own interest in that was to say, well, let's let's unpack this problem and start to think about solutions. And I can't solve it for the world, so but maybe I can solve it for myself, or at least the, the work that me and my collaborators do. And so the the of all of these different challenges, the one that I felt like was most tractable was to address power. And it seemed fundamental. Like if I can't get sufficient sample sizes to detect the effects that I'm investigating, then what's the point? Like what am I investigating? I'm just I'm just playing with noise or hoping for random chance to help me out. And so the the IAT was a really fun thing to do. I would bring, I actually have decks of cards where we had adapted them so that you could put different faces and words on them. And I'd take them home and all my college friends would sit in the coffee shop at night and sort them into piles for hours. And so I felt like this is something that people might get something educational out of doing themselves. It's not just a behavioral tool for psychologists, but it's behavioral tool for education, for getting people to think about what bias means and what uh, this kind of measurement might mean. And so it'd be cool to do it on the internet. And if people actually did find it interesting, maybe we'd get a lot more data than we could get in the lab uh, because it's a lot of work to bring people into the lab and have them do these types of tests. And so the in the fall of 98, uh, well, in the summer of 98, I guess, I had been pitching for a while to Tony and Mazarin, my senior uh, advisors, collaborators, uh, that we should create a website uh, and do this. And I was saying, oh, I, and I can do it. You know, I was a computer engineer, you know, not really having done any programming for the internet at all ever, but that didn't seem like a barrier. And so the, this sort of gives you a little bit of a window into what Tony Greenwald is like. He said, 
all right, let's do it. I scheduled a press conference in Seattle six weeks ago. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, let's do it. And so I didn't sleep for six weeks. Uh, I called a lot of uh, uh, favors from old friends when I realized that a lot of the programming was stuff that I had not done for long enough or had not experienced that it was going to be a real challenge to do and managed to the day before uh, the press conference to get it all working and get the website up. And we had a press conference in Seattle. And you know, we were, when we were having the fun part of building that, it was mostly just crazy. Uh, but the fun part was saying, you know, how many people do we, do we think we could get? Uh, do we put in this on the internet, right, in 1998? And the estimate that I had at the time was probably a very productive laboratory collects maybe 50,000 people in the, in the lifetime of the lab. Wouldn't it be awesome uh, if doing it on the internet, you could double that, right? So you, you have twice as many over the lifetime of the lab. You get 100,000 people, and that would be a very productive increase in power. Following the press conference, we had 50,000 people in three days. And I thought, oh, my God, okay, uh, this is something different. And so I, re I started to rededicate. And six weeks was exhausting, but it then turned inspiring. And so I invested a lot of the energy of my remaining graduate career into really fostering this as a tool for behavioral research on the internet. And now, you know, in the 18 years since, we have had more than 20 million people complete tests at the website. We get well over a million people a year uh, doing studies. And we essentially solved our power problem. Research that the, the collaborators that I have, the team in my lab and the teams in the other labs that are continue to be affiliated with Project Implicit, which is a nonprofit that spun out of this work, the, the research is very high-powered research. We can get very robust results and be very confident in them uh, because of this methodology. And so that felt great to address that, what seemed to me to be a core challenge uh, in science. Now, this is a much longer description than what you asked for, but that really was the transition point because for me it was the realization that technology can be used to address a lot of the fundamental challenges in at that time, my scope was limited to psychology. I felt like psychologists don't really have technical training. They don't know or, or don't have the experiences to know what is what they could do to solve their problems with effective use of technology. And that's a, a facility that I have just because of a background. And so maybe that's a way that I can contribute uh, to, the, to the discipline. And so when I joined the faculty at University of Virginia in 2002, and the first grant that I wrote was to NIH for an R01 for Project Implicit to really expand uh, the infrastructure uh, and to make it more broadly available, to make the data available and other things. And uh, and I got that grant, and so I spent five years really you know expanding that work and doing a lot of research via the internet, essentially having a dual lab, a technical side to the lab, which is a software development team, and the substance side of the lab. and really sort of elaborating this notion of technology and substantive scientific interests can really go hand in hand and support each other and lead to really great things. And so that, that's sort of all sort of leading up to uh, where, where we transition to the Center for Open Science. I, I can jump to that if you want and just keep talking or if there's questions there. We'll return to the interview in just a minute, but before we do, I just want to clarify a few things. In the second half of our interview, Brian and I talk about the Reproducibility Project Psychology, the Center for Open Science, and the Open Science Framework. 
Those things are really easy to conflate, so I think it's worth pointing out that the Reproducibility Project was an effort to reproduce 100 psychology studies. The Open Science Framework is an open source software platform that was used by the researchers involved in the Reproducibility Project to plan and share data and other things like that. It's free to use and now includes tools for addressing the entire research lifecycle. The Center for Open Science is a nonprofit that grew up around the Open Science Framework and has the mission to increase the openness, integrity, and reproducibility of scientific research. Anyway, for more information on anything discussed throughout the interview, either the first half or the second half, please check out our website, holdsignals.com. When I was in graduate school, you know, working in a psychology program, as the kind of replication crisis became a thing that started being talked about kind of beyond the field, the question that always would come up, to, I think, was what's going on with psychology? You know, are psychologists not trained in technology and, and statistics? Now that I have some distance from all of that, my, my kind of response is, well, no, I mean, look, there has been this debate for a long time in psychology. Like it's not, a, these are known issues. We've been talking about these for a long time. The groundwork of this debate goes back till 1959 or, or even before then. So I, I want to talk about the Center for Open Science, but I always think it's important to point out that these conversations have been happening for half a century, if not longer. Yeah. And I, I think that that's right, of course. And it's also the case that I think psychology has been more attentive to it than disciplines. And so we, we point to psychology as what's going on with psychology. But it's really why you know, this is this is the test bed of where it's actually getting solved. People are identifying the problems, they're addressing it, they're looking into it, they're unpacking it for their own field because there is this robust interest in methodology uh, and in how to use statistics, how to make uh, confident inferences. And so that really is it's at the leading edge rather than behind uh, in, in some ways. Of course, there are, there are other issues at play and otherwise, but it the challenges are much deeper than, oh, they, they just don't know how to do it right. right? That's easy throwaway uh, kind of comment uh, and totally ignorant of the facts. It is much more that psychology has an area of expertise to know something about where the problem actually is. The challenges of replication and reproducibility and all these things are not technical, they're social. It's the incentives that drive that researcher, right? That scientist, when I'm a grad student of saying, I, I have to get a job, what do I have to do to get a job? Well, I have to get positive results, I have to get novel results, I gotta get clean results. And getting that's hard, uh, because I'm studying stuff I don't understand. That's why I'm in the lab studying it. So I need to do things that maximize those outcomes in order to maximize my career, even if it's at the cost of accuracy. And of course, I'm not intending that. I don't want to do inaccurate science, but I have a conflict of interest. I have a stake in the outcome. Certain kind of outcomes are better for me, even if they're not as good uh, for an accurate description of what the science is. And so that that is a fundamentally psychological challenge uh, because it has effects on the individual and it has it has its roots in the way in which the culture the culture of science constrains that individual and how they behave. And so that to me is why psychology is more prepared than any other discipline to actually face and, and do something uh, about these issues. On the topic of those issues, let's talk about the Center for Open Science. I, I mean, as a psychology person and as somebody who's spent a lot of time now thinking about open science and, and 
reproducible science. I'm, I'm familiar with kind of where the, the, the center came from and the kind of origins of it. But if you could just spend a little bit of time explaining, you know, where the idea to do something like the Center for Open Science came from and what actually the Center for Open Science is. Sure, happy to do that. Uh, and it actually just sort of picks up where the story left, which was this, we got this, my first R01 grant coming out of grad school was for Project Implicit, expanding that infrastructure to make behavioral research on the internet easier to do, uh, to do higher powered research. And when that uh, grant was coming to a close, this five-year grant, so in the fourth year of that, uh, 2006, I guess it was, I started writing what's the next grants uh, to get for the lab, because uh, that was sort of the big core grant. And the two grants that I worked on uh, during that time to try to get funded, uh, one was to create an international participant pool. And the idea was we use this infrastructure, we, we add a few different components on it so that anybody could contribute samples from their resource, right? They're at the University of North Dakota. They have access to 100 participants. They contribute that and they, that gives them credit in the form of IPs, IPPs. And that's, that's the currency of the participant pool. And then they can use those credits to pull samples out of this shared resource with the idea that if we can start to pool these resources, we can be much more efficient. For example, I, if I'm doing a study and I need Asian women from North Dakota, then it's a lot easier for me to access that if there is a common pool from which we're all doing this. And then people can also, if we can start to pull in online samples, uh, we can do this as a high, in a high-powered research fashion. That was one uh, proposal that we were trying to get funded. We had all kinds of parts in the proposal for how we would do it. Uh, and this was, you know, just before MTurk uh, became a thing. And the other proposal was to create an open source science framework. And that was the idea of let's make more of the research available. Instead of it just being the publication, uh, we have all these massive data sets from Project Implicit now. People could use this and they could do more research than we can do ourselves uh, because we, we can't handle You know, I could spend my entire rest of my career analyzing that data and that would take 40 years or whatever it's going to be uh, to get, get that stuff out. Whereas if we made it more available for others, then we could learn a lot more stuff a lot more quickly and a lot more people with better ideas uh, could get into that data. And so it wasn't just about project implicit data. We say, let's, let's build uh, some infrastructure where I can share that, but then anybody could share anything. And so those two proposals got shopped around 2006, 2007, and uh, could not get them funded. So very polarized uh, reviews. Some people saying this will change everything, data sharing is so important, and boy, a, a pool for collecting data on the internet, everybody, that sounds great. And others saying that that's never going to work. Uh, and people don't like sharing data. Why would we create this? And so uh, eventually I gave up. I, I tried multiple times with each of those proposals, and I gave up and moved the lab to a self-funding model, uh, which uh, I was able to because I, I do these corporate talks uh, for Project Implicit. Lots of people are interested in implicit bias at this point, and so places will give lots of money. And so I funded my lab uh, with giving those talks. But uh, in 2011, a grad student in the lab, Jeff Spees, was trying to figure out what he wanted to do for his dissertation. And he had had a software development background uh, prior to coming to grad school in quantitative psychology. And we were mostly looking at ideas of missing data designs and evolutionary analyses of uh, responsive analysis, machine learning kinds of approaches uh, with our big data sets. Uh, and, uh, but 
we sort of, in our conversations, searching for different ideas, we kept returning to this idea of an open science framework. And that had really aligned with ideas that he had had prior to coming to the lab of what he wanted to contribute in science. We just kept coming back to that idea and talking about it. And uh, we had sort of a, a, a day of reckoning conversation where we said, okay, if you want to do that, it is a very important project, right? This is this is something that if it worked could really change a lot, but you're simultaneously probably deciding on not having a career in science. And that's because building software as a psychology dissertation probably hasn't been done before. And so this is this is really risky. Are you sure you want to do that? Let's I'm not going to get in your way because I'm t I think it's the most important thing that could be done, uh, but I want it to be an eyes open decision about really what this what this direction is moving. And he sort of you know spent a, a week thinking about it and said I want to do it. And so he jumped in and started uh, design work uh, for the open science framework. And at the same time, we launched a, a new collaborative project. I love to do these sort of one off collaborative projects with teams, especially during the summer with the grad students uh, in the department. So we had done one, a citation analysis uh, of, of social psychology, social personality psychologists and published that in uh, a psych journal. And so we, we thought, boy, there's, there is lots of discussion about replicability. We've had our own challenges in the lab over the years because uh, we can do this high powered stuff. So we would try to replicate stuff routinely and often fail. But there isn't any systematic evidence uh, for whether there is an actual problem or these just one off uh, issues. And so why don't we do a, a project to see if we can get some evidence about a sample of studies uh, in the field. And so we, in the in that same uh, time frame, we designed a reproducibility project in psychology and, and then announced it on the listserv, say, if anybody else wants to join us, this is what we're going to do. And dozens of people joined instantly. And we're like, oh my gosh, okay, this is this really could be something. It's sort of like that experience with Project Implicit, right? We put it on, people came, and it was like, well, it would be great to say we had these, these aspirations to do this amazing thing, but we didn't. We sort of had this little idea, and it connected with interests of others and became a big idea very quickly. And so we actually merged these two projects. The reproducibility project uh, used as its infrastructure the initial versions of the open science framework that Jeff was working on as the way in which we were going to coordinate this huge collaborative project that now had you know 50 people at that point in time. It ended up having 270 co-authors and 85 others that contributed. And, uh, and so that was this online mechanism for us to then start the project and organize it and post the data and all the materials and everything else. And so those two projects were just two projects in the lab. You know, we were funding them with the resources we had available to us and doing the substantive work on the side on the other things. But they, they caught interest of others, and there were a couple of uh, media stories that got written about them. And as soon as that happened, we started getting phone calls from funders, and, and that was stunning. And one of them in particular moved very, very quickly. So we ended up getting funding from all of them. One, an anonymous donor, uh, Templeton Foundation gave us a very generous grant, and the Sloan Foundation uh, gave us a generous grant as well. But the one that sort of moved the quickest uh, and the earliest was the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. And that, you know, we had a, a little interaction in like July of 2012. Uh, and then a couple months later, had another sort of co quick conversation with Stuart Buck, who was their vice president of research integrity. And then 
in October, he said, well, you know, let, let's see, let me see a demo of, of what you're doing. And, and so we did a, a, you know, Google Hangout and showed him what we're working on. He said, that's, that's pretty interesting. You know, I think I want to do a demo to our board. And at this point, we had figured out that the Laura and John Arnold Foundation had just formed, you know, two or three years early uh, and was really, you know, now exploring its areas of philanthropic priorities. And, and Stuart's, you know, saying he's going to show the the stuff to the board, and we said, "Oh, how about we show it to the board, right? <laughs> this is you know, possession of our baby. Let let us show it. Let us show it." And and he said, "Sure." And I'm like, "Whoa, okay, okay. We'll, we'll show it to the board." And so we did a Google Hangout with them for an hour, showed what we were working on, and then they said, "Well, why don't you come out to Houston, uh, which is where they're based, and we can have a conversation in person about it?" So a couple weeks later, we went out to Houston. We sat with the board uh, and Stuart uh, for an hour and a half, two hours. Uh, and then they said, okay, how about drop a budget? And then we, okay, uh, we, we drew up a budget. Uh, and then they gave us a grant for five and a quarter million dollars. I mean, I say that in what two minutes, uh, that's how fast it felt. <laughs> uh, it was so fast and surrealistic in terms of how these aspirational ideas we had started to tumble into conversations about what we could try to do and what things they do, and, and they are a very, you know, sort of uh, aggressive uh, philanthropy. They say, this is an interesting idea. Uh, we think they have a track for it. We're just, we're going to give it a try. And they took a real chance on us. Uh, and we are so grateful for that as a opportunity. And it turned what, you know, of course we have high aspirations and concept. We'd love to get to this more open reproducible science and the big picture. But you know, we're always just sort of pushing up, okay, realistically, what can we accomplish? What can we accomplish with what we've got? And that initial grant just, you know, completely shifted the, the aspirational trajectory of what, how we might think about what these tools could provide as an opportunity. And so the in January 2013, uh, we said, well, we're going to spin this out. This can't be a lab-based project. It has to be a uh, nonprofit. And so we launched the Center for Open Science as a nonprofit and with a mission to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. And there, there are a couple of key parts of how we thought that we have to set this up in order to meet the, the mission and aspirations for it. One is that it couldn't be commercial. If what, what we feel like our role is in this space is to build public goods infrastructure, all free open source tools to which other commercial services and organizations can connect their tools. And our role is to connect all of these services together, make it easy for researchers to discover and use the things that they want to use that work for them and be agnostic uh, to uh, what those tools are and ecumenical in the sense of trying to float all boats and make it easier for all of these things to work together with the primary goal is to make sure that to whatever extent there are incentives that are not focused entirely on the science, like making a living, uh, having a successful company, to whatever extent those exist, they should be monetizing or competing on quality of service, not on control of access to content. So the core of the openness goal for us is open outcomes, right? publications, open access, that's great. There's a lot of groups working on that. We have a sort of indirect way that we're working on open access, but open data, right? The materials, the content, the scripts, the protocols, all of that being open and always open 
and services uh, providing access and discovery and everything else can be the way that corporation companies charge. And then open workflow. Can I see how it is you got to your inference? How it is you generated that data? so that I can be more confident or critique uh, the process that you used uh, or that you can do the same uh, for the process that I used. And so that's really at the core of what the Center for Open Science is all about. And it simultaneously has from that original research interests of how we might behave in ways that are counter to our values. The center's whole approach is recognizing that scientific practices are not aligned with core scientific values of openness and usability. And so what are the ways that we can change the incentives and the culture so that scientists who come into science valuing those things, saying that's why I'm in science, can express them and be rewarded for them rather than have that be a, uh, being open and reproducible be a career cost. One thing I, I, I did want to clarify, because there, there might be people listening who don't know about the reproducibility project and the reproducibility crisis and all of that stuff. Seriously? Could you? <laughs> Just I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we might have people who are listening who aren't scientists and, and not involved in this. And I guess it's not a, a, a trivial. It's a non-trivial question. But could you just speak for a minute about what we mean by reproducibility? Yeah. So reproducibility actually is a catch-all term in many ways, uh, and it's the idea that someone can independently re reproduce the same evidence. Uh, that you provided about a particular phenomenon. And that's a core value in science because science does not advance. Scientific claims don't become credible because I said so, because I'm an authority, uh, because you just have to believe me. They become credible because you can reproduce the same evidence that I gave. So that can mean you can take the same data set that I used and reanalyze it and find the same results that I found. Right? That's not generating new evidence, that's applying same tools, the same process to the existing evidence. But it also can mean replication, uh, which is actually redoing that study uh, in a different way or with a different sample at a different time independently of the original and seeing if the same results obtain when it's done. And then it can also mean a more extensive thing, which is does that finding generalize when you use new tools or new ways of testing the same question? Is it reproducible outside the specific idiosyncrasies of that, per, that methodology that you used originally? All of those have an element of reproducibility in them, uh, but they address slightly different parts of the problem, and all of them are challenges. And, and just to kind of loop back to our, our earlier conversation, like the question of re reproducibility and replication in psychology specifically is not new. People have been talking about this since... 1959 or, or thereabouts, where people looked at the literature and, and saw that nobody's replicating anything, or at least no one's publishing replications of anything. Right. Replications aren't being published, and the published literature shows almost entirely positive results, even though the power of the studies is not sufficient to obtain positive results at that rate. So it was sort of obvious that something is not right, uh, but it wasn't, has not been completely clear what is not right, what ways to address that, and what's, what will be effective. And so that's really what the Reproducibility Project, the goal was to just provide some concrete evidence. So these debates that are about concepts, about possibilities, can get grounded into something to say, well, okay, here we tried to replicate 100 original results, and this is what happened. Now let's argue about that to then inspire some new investigations and deeper understanding of the challenges of reproducibility. To me, the exciting things are what's ahead, 
so much enthusiasm in psychology and beyond, uh, and this is now the issues about reproducibility are across across the sciences. They're not uh, just constrained to psychology in any way. But there is so much enthusiasm and good ideas about things that we can do, how we can actually address these incentive challenges, how we can actually build tools uh, that make it easier to share data. The progress there is happening real fast. And the what I'm most excited about in terms of the Center for Open Science is just being able to contribute to that, that there are so many communities doing really great things. You know, we can, the role we can play, I think, is to connect those communities together uh, to make it so that it's easy for people to collaborate and reuse uh, and to draw on some common tools and resources to solve the problems that are local to their uh, discipline or, or domain or, or area of interest. I guess my last question or my penultimate question is if you had any advice for somebody who is thinking about embarking on a career in research in the context of all these questions about reproducibility and open science and changing, hopefully, incentive structures, do you have any advice for a person like that about how to proceed? I don't know if I have good advice, but the, what I feel good about in terms of how I've navigated science myself is that I have tried to have a clear sense of what you know my principles are. What are the things that matter to me in how I do my science? And and try to live that, right? So this gap we have, this concern of, of our daily practices and, and the values that we have, how can I survive and thrive by living my values as closely to them as I can? And that can feel real difficult in an environment in a culture where it's very clear that some other practices are incentivized that you can thrive more quickly doing taking shortcuts uh p hacking you know, reporting subsets not bothering to share your data and other things uh that can feel very defeating and and there is risk in not playing the game that way there no doubt is but for me it was a question of if i can't survive doing it the way that I think it should be done, then I shouldn't be in science. And that would be a good reason to go. If I have to sacrifice these, what I feel are core principles to what science is all about, then it's not, it's not worth doing it. The whole point is to try to live up to the values that we have every day. And so what I find very exciting about the world right now is, yes, there is a lot of uncertainty about where it will go and how things will change. But the box has been opened. And there's so many people thinking about these issues, working on alternatives, advancing uh, approaches that value uh, more diverse uh, ways of contributing, you know, code as a research contribution, data as a research contribution. All of these things are providing opportunity to actually give people a chance to live uh, more closely to their values and align more closely what's good for them and what's good for science. And then on the other hand, there there are, I think there's an audience of people who are very interested in science, but are themselves not scientists and are, are reading about science and maybe psychology specifically online or, or wherever and are reading about things like the replication crisis and reading about things like openness and, and reading <laughs> headlines that are like, you know, is psychology doomed or is whatever science broken? Do you have any advice for somebody like that for for kind of navigating that type of literature or just any advice for, for people who are, are kind of struggling to understand what's happening within the field who are not themselves within it? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And, and probably the same answer applies to even people that are in it. Uh, and that is, uh, 
that we can see that conversation and that discussion and these sort of self-investigations as um, as a threat or as defeating or as indicating something bad. But I, I think exactly the opposite, which is, you know, the promise of science is that it's self-correcting. And, and this is science being science. It's not just about the findings that get self-corrected, but on the process uh, by which we do science to get to the most confident inferences that we can. And so the fact for me that, you know, like the reproducibility project got a lot of uh, press and some, you know, very gloomy headlines. But for me, they totally missed the boat, uh, those gloomy headlines, uh, which is 270 people got together, volunteered their time, uh, gave us service. I'm the only one that got credit. None of the 269 others got any kind of real meaningful credit. And so they were giving their time that they could have been using to advance their careers because they care enough about the discipline to study it to try to be self-critical in saying, let's look at what might be an uncomfortable thing to look at so that we can do it better. And that is science at its best. is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. This week in the Bold Signals Documentary Club, the first episode of Cosmos, A Personal Journey. So this episode begins with the monologue that you heard a few minutes ago. We're immediately introduced to the conceit of the series, which is an exploration of the cosmos, defined extraordinarily broadly as all that is, all that was, and all that ever will be. And at least in this episode, that exploration will be done in a ship of the imagination, a device that I first assumed was meant to be allegorical until Sagan started talking from its central control room. And what follows is part astronomy tour, part philosophy, all of which hedges very close to science fiction. The tone is, at least in the first half of this episode, very much closer to Fantasia. I think, than any sort of science documentary I've ever seen before. We even visit an alien world. You know, there are ample references to majestic wonders. There's lots of Carl Sagan staring out the window of his imaginary spaceship to the landscape of Mars. There's lots of analogy and there's lots of certainty. And it's only halfway through the episode that we finally get to Earth. And we talk about the story of Eratosthenes calculating the circumference of the Earth. We then go to the Library of Alexandria, which is framed as the first research institute in the world where genius like Euclid and Archimedes and Ptolemy flourished. There's a, an extended conversation about the one million books at the Library of Alexandria and how they were burned. The episode ends with an exploration of the cosmic calendar, a device that a device that Sagan had developed in his earlier writing, which basically shows that if the lifetime of the universe up to the present were contained in a single year, humans would have first developed 
at 10.30 p.m. on December 31st. Basically, it's a, a way of showing the scale of time and of the universe that will be explored, I assume, in later episodes. The idea is to show that intelligence and knowledge of the cosmos are basically a 15 billion year long legacy. So beyond that summary, I have a lot of thoughts about all of this. But first, I think it's important to give some context. Sagan, even 20 years after his death, is a towering figure in the field of science communication. And if you look hard enough, uh, the ways lots and lots of people perceive science, including me probably, can be traced back to his books and this documentary. 36 years after its first broadcast, Cosmos remains the most watched PBS series in the world. And that is a huge achievement. And I think Sagan should, should continue to be absolutely commended for being a scientist set on popularizing, communicating, and advocating for science. But wow, in retrospect, I have a lot of problems with how things are presented in this episode. First, I think the tour around the universe in a ship of the imagination works kind of well, actually, as a poetic expression of how vast the universe is. I don't think it's necessarily very successful though as a meaningful way of communicating actual astronomy it peters really dangerously close to science fiction this is a documentary that is explicitly dedicated to celebrating scientific fact and scientific inquiry and in the first half of the first hour we visit a world with an advanced alien civilization i also really object to the depiction of science and the Library of Alexandria section, you know, putting aside the fact that I started this podcast explicitly to undermine the stereotype of the lone scientific genius, which is really on ample display as we talk about Ptolemy and Euclid and friends. But as a scientist turned librarian, I actually know a little something about libraries, and I happen to know that the story of the Library of Alexandria is far less straightforward than it's presented here. I don't think an extended conversation about budget problems and the necessity of backing up your collection in case there's a fire really have a place when you're trying to make a compelling science documentary. But I think it also confuses the situation a bit when you're presenting myth as fact, even when you're only doing so rhetorically as a way to talk about something else. Also, and maybe this won't be true in future episodes, but Sagan is literally the only person on screen for the whole hour. There are no expert interviews. For an episode that ends with a quote about the long collective enterprise of science, we only really get one voice. So really kind of a mixed bag so far. I think the music and visuals, even 35 years later, are really, really awesome. I think this is a historically vital work and one that has been hugely influential within and beyond the scientific community. But I also think that at least so far, the presentation is almost antithetical to how science is actually done day-to-day -day in a laboratory. Maybe it's just that it's the first episode. Maybe it's that because this documentary has been so influential that I'm having a hard time seeing what came before it. But so far, I think the emphasis on showing the majestic wonders of science kind of undercuts how hard it is for the people who actually do it day-to-day. -day. Anyway, I'm going to keep with it. Next time, I'm going to watch the second and third episodes. The second episode is One Voice in the Cosmic Fugue. And the third episode is called Harmony of the Worlds. Thanks for listening. For links and show notes, visit our new website, boldsignals.com. You can also follow the podcast on social media, either on Facebook, facebook.com slash boldsignalspod, or on Twitter, twitter.com slash boldsignalspod. You can email us comments at our email address, boldsignals at gmail.com. You can listen to Bold Signals on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Figshare, 
or really your podcast app of choice. If you like the podcast and want to help us out, please consider writing us a review or leaving us a rating on iTunes. The more ratings and reviews we have, the more featured we are. And we also really wouldn't mind if you shouted out the podcast on social media or just recommended us to a friend. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.